Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Bibi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. So today our topic is going to be part craft and part news slash real life. Uh, you and I have been thinking a lot about kids and what they're going through during the pandemic. Uh, the children I know have been, you know, great, uh, tough, you know, resilient, um, dealing with this period of time, even though, of course, none of this has been their fault, uh, we talk about kids all the time, but what about talking to them, with them, or for them, right, when you're writing? Uh, who gives room to their interior lives and how writers, how do writers handle kids' point of view and their voices ethically? So we're going to talk today about what it takes to write from the point of view of children and to think about how or if our way of thinking about children and their inner lives has been changed by the pandemic. Wait, have you ever written from the point of view of a child? I... I you know, I thought about this. I realized that in in every novel that I've written but one, the war novel, I, I have written from the point of view of a child. And, it, you know, like the, the King of King Sound is, is about a is about a young man's whole entire life. But his all, all the opening is just his childhood. Right. And there were also it's also a, a young boy growing up in in the Huntsman. And I'm writing about children now. That's right. Um, I have just read listeners um some excellent scenes set in childhood by Whitney oh. <laughs> um anyway um yeah I think like capturing the kookiness of kids is um and like their depth also it's unusual that people are able to do that well what about what about your I mean I I read your forthcoming book that is not a child's book for the well I don't know in movement are there scenes from kids points of view not sort really. Of. I'm like, um, I'm like steeped teen? in. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's teenagers. Um, yeah. my, my characters tend to operate in deeper retrospectives so they can regret everything as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> because my general feeling is, oh dear, why did that happen? Um, and so that heavily inflects all of my point of view choices. I remember I had an I had an Iowa classmate who like at some point totally called me on that. And I was like, I didn't realize I did that. That's so interesting. He was like, uh-huh. Have you ever written though a story like or something from a from a child child's point of view like ten and under? I haven't. I haven't. Um, it's funny. I have um, a a sibling who's a very uh, colorful storyteller and who likes to tell stories by saying, "Do you remember X?" And then this they will tell the story and flip our roles in them so that no matter what has happened in the story, I am the person who has committed the wrong, even though it is it is not me. It is usually them. And so like, it's like, it's like childhood is gaslighting. So my response to this has been basically to be like, they're like, do you remember this from our childhood? And I'm like, no, block the the whole thing out. 
just obliterated well, it. Your other memory. possible response is to write the story the way that you <laughs> makes you the good guy and them not. You know, you could try that. Well, I'll get my get on my revenge fiction right away. <laughs> so, you know, there are issues, just as you're talking about, about the power of writing and the power that adults have when they write about kids, you know. And we'll also be talking about that. And fortunately, we have two authors on who are very familiar with writing about young narrators. Uh, Later in this episode, we'll talk to my good friend, Elizabeth Gaffney, the author of When the World Was Young. But first, we're going to talk to another friend, the poet Wayne Miller, who recently wrote for LitHub about writing about his own children. Wayne is the author of five collections of poems, including Post and We the Jury, which came out earlier this year. He's also a co-translator of two books from the Albanian poet, Moikam Zecchio, and a co-editor of three anthologies, including Literary Publishing in the 21st Century and New European Poets. He's the winner of the UNT Rilke Prize, a Ruth Lilly Fellowship, and the George Bogan Award. Wayne is a professor of English at the University of Colorado Denver, where he edits Copernicle, one of my favorite literary journals. Wayne, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's very good to see you. Uh, we, of course, got to know each other when you were in Kansas City at the uh, University of Central Missouri, which had different names at different times. Um, uh, so it's great to have you on now. From from we and I recently saw you in Denver because our, fam- our families were having mm-hmm. a trip out there. My family was having a trip out there. Um, you wrote this essay about putting children into your poems. I wonder if you could start off by reading a little bit of it. Sure, um, I. I was prompted to write something about fatherhood and poetry for Father's Day, um, and the essay begins with uh, with this moment where, uh, right after my daughter was born in 2011, a friend asked me, kind of joking around with me, if I was going to become one of those parent poets who only writes sentimental poems about his kids now. and. Um, you know, he was a friend. He was clearly joking. I wasn't upset by this, but it did get me thinking because I had been worried about um, how I might write about my kids. Because I think we have this simplifying, reductive way of talking about our kids sometimes. We don't want to talk about the complications of parenthood. And so, um, so my sense is that reductive simplicity is really, for the most part, the enemy of poetry. And so this essay is really sort of tracking my... Um, thinking on my way to trying to figure out how to not write in that simplified way around my kids, so, or about my kids. So here is, um, uh, here's an excerpt from the essay. At a certain point, I realized that what I wanted to avoid wasn't so much writing about my children as it was writing about them in domestic isolation. The sense that children are contained inside their parents' reality is an illusion of home life, where the walls are paid for by the parents, the food is provided by the parents, and thus the children's lives seem to be encompassed by the parents' overarching narratives. Even under the best of domestic circumstances, right under their parents' noses, children are constructing their own hidden interior lives. And of course, the plodding stability of daily domestic life is at least partially an illusion. My parents divorced when I was eight, and my father soon moved across the country. By the time I'd finished high school, he'd married and divorced two more times. Meanwhile, when I was a teenager, my mother was deeply ill, and I was mostly on my own for many months. Worse, when my wife was 12, her single mother died, leaving my wife to be passed around among aunts and uncles until she finished high school. Both my wife and I are well aware of the tenuousness of domestic life. It's something we often think and talk about, particularly now that we're parents. 
In fact, focusing on these sorts of illusions, uncertainties, and disconnects is how I began writing about my children. As I watched my children grow, I realized that my poetic interest in them was mostly in how they sought the world beyond my wife and me, and how each of them was a world beyond us, even as we encircled them with our lives. We were simultaneously at the center of the world they looked at, conduits to the world they looked at, and barriers between them and the world they sought. To be all of these contradictions at once is what parenthood is, I began to realize, a paradoxical entanglement. Any poems I might write about my children would need to take all this complexity into account. Thanks so much, Wayne. When I got to that part about domestic isolation, I thought, of course, of this year and the kind of brutal loneliness of working from home, which, of course, coexists simultaneously with the refuge of being at home. Um, and of course, that's like also a totally privileged position. Many people didn't have that. Um, sure. And I wonder how your experiences from the past year have reshaped your notion of domestic isolation and writing about kids in relation to that. Yeah, I, I haven't been writing a lot this last year. And when I have, it's generally not been about my children, I think, for this reason. Um, it's uh, um, I mean, everyone everyone had a terrible year, right? <laughs> and, um, and in a variety of different ways. Um, and I remember talking to, uh, for instance, a friend of mine who doesn't have kids and is single, and his year was about sort of crushing loneliness and never being able to leave his apartment. Um, and my year was about never being able to hear myself think because I was living in a small house with a family that never went away. Um, and so I think both of those things made writing hard for both of us, but, uh, but I think in, in opposite ways, if that makes sense. It's really interesting because how old are your kids now? Six and 10. Okay. So that's different. So my, my children are, uh, you know, now 16 and 11, so during the pandemic, 15 and yeah. 10, you know, and so I actually had the experience. Now, there were other things that happened to me during the pandemic, like having my knee ruined by getting hit by a car that were bad right? and worrying about my parents. But having my kids around was actually quite nice. And I got to, I mean, in, 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 in ways that actually it's been more difficult. I, there's been more strife between my, particularly my 16 year old and I now that he can go out and drive around than it was when we were like playing Dungeons and Dragons at dinner every day and didn't have anything else to do. Yeah. Yeah, no, my kids, my kids were at a good age to get through the pandemic uh, in that neither of them was desperate to, you know, be out socializing with friends or, you know, neither of them is a teenager. So they, they don't have any interest in dating. You know, I don't didn't have to deal with any of that. Um, and we were able to pod with uh, two other families that had kids about our kids' ages, so they got to play together. But the, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm an only child of a single mother, and so I have trouble writing when there's anyone in my house. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm used to complete silence and uh, and really having the space to myself. And so, um, so yeah, so this was not a great writing year for me. That's so funny. I don't know, Sugi, is that true for you? Are you I, like, I am totally happy to work in my office. I have an app on my phone that actually plays white noise. So like if the kids are in the other room playing basketball, I will just turn the white noise app on and I'm totally fine. And then when I get to a breaking point, I can just go play basketball for a while. And I'm like, oh, it's great. There's people around. I'm not lonely. But I guess maybe I'm weird that way. <laughs> I prefer to be alone. Um, <laughs> I don't want, especially, it's interesting, I don't have this, if I'm writing nonfiction, then it's fine, people can be around, but um, 
if I'm writing fiction, I really need, uh, like people could be in the house, but I don't want to see them or talk to them or hear them or, um, yeah. And so it was interesting because, um, I got a huge chunk of writing done and then I got a dog and the dog is, our, my dog is wonderful. She, um, but also she's like constantly seeking my company and I was like surprised about the extent to which like this is it's not a person <laughs> like it should be mm-hmm. fine but um yeah like the solitude I I really sympathize with your um your habits and their disruption I think you know even as um being around other people during this time I think I I was not alone during the pandemic and I can't imagine how I think yeah for many of my friends who are single like that was very difficult um but then, yeah, like the there, I, th- I think I also talked to a lot of parents who felt like they got the gift of unexpected additional time with their children yeah. um, and that it really changed the fabric of like almost exactly what you're writing about in this essay. Right. The ways in which I mean, who among us did not look at the young people around us, whether we were parents or not, and think like, I did not have to go to school like this. I did not have to yeah. mask up because the adults around me were screwing up like I did not have to. Like, I also feel like a lot of kids I know have, during the pandemic, but even before this, have learned a lot of, as the adults around them have raged against political figures, like people have adopted a different kind of language. And like even that has been normalized for kids in, in how they view the world. But I'm kind of jumping the gun here <laughs> on our next question, which I shouldn't do. So what do you... Oh, well, we wanted to, before we... Well, Suki is talking about some very interesting things, which we will get to. But I, well, we wanted to still talk about this essay. And you, you have three categories of... Uh, fatherhood poems that you talk about within the context of the essay and and those made me think about you know my own experiences as a father I wondered if you could just sort of walk through those categories um, for the our listeners and talk about how you came up with them well these are certainly not exhaustive uh, an exhaustive list of categories Um, I I was just thinking about the kinds of poems that um, you know, I basically just went through the books that I had in my office and thought, well, what are the, I mean, the essay was specifically about fatherhood because it was for Father's Day. You know, I was thinking about what are the father poems that I like? And then beyond that, what are more generally the parenthood poems? And then I started thinking about putting them into categories. And then when I look back in my last two books, the books I've written since I had kids, I realized that I could place all of my poems about my kids in those same categories uh, in one way or the other. But the categories are not discrete. I mean, it's very possible for a a poem to fit into more than one of these. Um, And in fact, most of the poems I really like about parenthood do. But the three categories in the essay are uh, first, triangulation poems. These are my, my silly names for them. Triangulation poems in which the parent thinks about how he and his children separately relate to the world that hangs between them. Gap poems, that's number two, which focus on the unknowability of children, the way we have this massive gap between our interior lives and their interior lives, no matter how often we're trying to bridge that. And then uh, what I call mirroring poems, in which the parent thinks about his own childhood and relationship to his children's uh, childhoods. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I think the one that I was thinking of when I was talking just now was the third one where I feel like every adult I knew looked around at the kids that they knew and thought my childhood was not like this childhood. And there is something about this that is also unknowable category number two for me. And then like, also maybe I'm the translator of that exterior world category number one. Um, And how do I try to translate what is going on now in the news? And so the essay mentioned specifically your poem, parable of childhood. Um, And I wonder if you would talk about, 
what categories you might think that poem fits into and, and also read it for us. I think this is first and foremost a gap poem. Um, it's uh, really about um, parents and their kid doing things they don't understand. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, uh, well, let me read it and you'll see. Um, Parable of Childhood. I should say it's a prose poem, so it's in these little um, sort of tiny paragraphs. Um, it's almost like a lineated prose poem, which doesn't make sense, but that's sort of how I think about it. Parable of Childhood. When the dog finally died, Dad dug a hole beside the fence and buried her in a boot box. She's gone, but she had a good life, Mom said. It's okay to be sad. Next day, the boy came into the kitchen holding the box in front of him. She's not gone. She's still in there, he said. Look. Mom lifted the lid. Sweetie, when things die, we give them back to the earth. And then we forget them there? Yes and no, Dad replied. He put the box in the hole and covered it over. Together, they walked back to the house. In the morning, the box was on the kitchen counter. I couldn't sleep, the boy said. She was all alone out there. Maybe that's how she wants it to be, Dad replied. No, she doesn't want anything, the boy said. She's dead. But her box was full of air inside the earth. That wasn't right. They filled the box with dirt and placed it inside the hole. What does it mean to die? The boy asked. Dad thought of his own father who died a year before the boy was born, a long suffering until at last his body had filled with snow. No one knows what death is, Dad said. I wish I had a better answer for you. Four days passed before the box, heavy with dirt and rot, arrived again inside the house. Why is this here? Dad asked. No one knows what death is, the boy said. I wanted to find out. Jesus, Dad said, and went out to the garage. Mom said gently, no, when things die, they're gone, so we return them to the earth. The dog was gone. That was clear. But the dog was also right there, just below the surface, packed in darkness. The boy could bring her back inside whenever he wanted, no matter what his parents said. Uh, thank you very much. I mean, that poem is really interesting to me for a lot of reasons, um, which we're going to talk about. One of them is, you know, this this idea of, of the dog was also right there, just below the surface, um, packed in darkness. I mean, for me, that that line reads like so many things that I think are present in my children's lives now that's just below the surface, packed in darkness. Not just death, which has been associated with a pandemic, but like, the, the disease itself, right? The mysterious origins, origins of it. The, why, why is the president choosing to do these things, you know, when Trump was president? Mm -hmm. You know, like, why isn't everyone getting their vaccine? What are the truths behind this? All this stuff that they're trying to figure out. And like a lot of times I don't have answers for. And so that, that discussion for me felt very fresh. When did you write it? Um, before the pandemic, for sure. <laughs> um, I can't remember exactly when I wrote this poem, maybe about three or four years ago. Um, I mean, it's, I wrote this when my son was too young for him to do any of these things. So, so it was even before, it's a boy it wasn't based poem, on something that happened with an actual child no. of yours, right? It was an imaginary uh, discussion. It's an imagined narrative, um, but, uh, but it's the kind of thing that my daughter would do. Um, it, the, the way that the boy in the poem keeps turning 
their answers back against them is the kind of thing that my daughter would do all the time when she was, say, six, seven, eight. Um, and uh, and the, the weird kind of innocence of doing that, and yet it's so exasperating to the parents, but she's just very earnestly, or in the poem, he's just very earnestly saying, yeah, but I, you said we don't know what death is, so I want to find out. Um, you know, that, um, that, that interaction is the kind that is very familiar to me as a parent of two kids. And, and I learned about that first with my daughter. I also feel like as a parent, and this relates to what maybe Sugi was talking about a little bit before uh, with the masking and the kids having to learn to deal with it. Like <laughs> there's never been a time in my life where I felt like I knew the answers that my children, the answers to the questions that my children had less, you know, like, yeah, okay. I yeah. can't explain about death, but there's a lot of other things that have come up now in the last year, 18 months that I do not understand yeah. and cannot fully explain to them. Um, and, you know, your, your poem is sort of dealing with that uncertainty. Uh, you know, you include the children in the work, but you don't quote their voices. You don't assume their vision. In other words, you don't presume to understand them. In fact, in this poem, you're not only outside the child, you're outside the dad, who's the character that you identify with. Could you sort of talk about that choice? Um, so, you know, I think I had a, an instinctual sense that I wanted the, if you can, if this term makes sense, sort of the camera of the poem, right, the vantage of the poem, to be fairly far outside of the action, to, to not be inside any of these characters' interior lives too fully, and, and particularly the kid is mysterious, because ultimately, in my mind, the vantage is, if, if it's anyone's vantage, it's the parent's vantage. Um, and, uh, but, but I didn't want to over explain that. I wanted to keep the camera at a distance, the vantage at a distance for the most part. And, um, and I, I think it became clear to me that the reason for that is that the poem was about the fact that the child, the child's, um, actions couldn't really be known or explained that there's something about that interior life of the child that is mysterious to everyone, uh, including the parents, and um, that we're all mysterious to each other in this way. Um, but, uh, and that we only have the exterior representations of the interior self to, um, to make sense of that other person's interior self. And I think that's very true of parents and their kids. And I think that's to be respected. Um, you know, I think that I'm very suspicious of parents who who claim to understand everything about their kids. You know, when you hear parents talk about their kids that way, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're wrong. <laughs> and so I only really um, know when they're hungry. That exactly, I feel like I know. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I feel like I know that, too. That's exactly my point. <laughs> um, so, you know, like I, 90 I think percent of the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just a good guess that they're hungry when in doubt hungry. Um but yeah, so I think that, that, I, that I started the poem from that vantage not knowing what the purpose of that would be. And by the time I got to that closing image of the, 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 the dog sealed in darkness, which to me is the dog, but is also a representation of these interiors that are all sealed in darkness, um, I think that, uh, that, that that had paid off. So when you and I were corresponding about this interview, you pointed out six poems as the ones that, that mention children. It's a good chunk of the collection. Mm -hmm. And Parable of Childhood was one of those poems. And the opening poem, which is called The News, was not. I love that poem. And, um, oh, and I think still, you know, perhaps because you had mentioned in the essay, you know, imagining your kids reading your work and what would they think. Um, I kind of found myself reading that poem, The News, 
as though it were a conversation between a parent and a child. Um, and I was wondering if you would read it for us. Uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Um, so I'll, I'll just set this up the way I, I intend, the way in my mind the poem is read, the vo- who the voices are. But then, um, but then I think you're right, um, because the situation is similar. In my mind, this is a poem where, you know, the, the news has brought on one of these like experts who spent a lifetime studying, in this case, economics and this city called death or this country called death. Um, and uh, and 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 he's supposed to explain sort of everything he knows in 45 seconds in response to these really kind of asinine news questions. Um, and uh, and when I got to thinking about this, I think that that this is similar to our experience of, of parenthood in a way that, you know, you have this lifetime of experience and then you have these moments that you try to say things to your kids that like summarize a lifetime of experience and it's inevitably a failure, right? You're just not able to summarize. The only thing you can do is sort of fumble along saying things that you know when you can. And that's why this is a sort of false exercise on the news that we see all the time. And I think it's also a false exercise for parents that, that I often participate in, um, but but it always fails. So anyway, here's this, this news conversation. There are two voices here. There's a question and then an answer. And um, I think that's clear when I read it. The news. What nation has the most robust economy? Death. And on what is that economy built? The end of pain. What are death's most notable exports? Incompletion, oil, and the arts. What about imports? Death is the largest consumer of voices and, of course, bodies. What are death's primary challenges? It has none. Its economy is an inexorable machine. What then should our strategy be? I'm afraid we have no choice but to expand our relationship with death. And how do we do that? We should ask, what are the needs of its citizens? Given our resources, what can we do for them? Thank you. I feel like that line, I'm afraid we have no choice but to expand our relationship with death is like something that Mitch McConnell said once at like the beginning of the Trump's presidency. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, that's that's when I wrote this poem. Um, and, uh, you know, that that sense. Well, so. Um, so, yeah, I think that the poem does. Um, it can easily be read as being about contemporary American politics or world politics, a kind of growth of authoritarianism around the world. I don't think it has to be isolated to America. I think we see this movement all over the world right now. Yeah, you know, uh, and that's it brings us back to this sort of ongoing discussion we've been having during this interview is like, the difficulty of talking to the children about the news, you know, not just mm-hmm. about the pandemic. I had a, I posted something about from 2019 because I got one of those like on Facebook, like you did this in 2019. It was like this vacation I took with the kids up in Minnesota where we actually visited Sugi and we were staying at a lake or whatever. And I was like, I wrote originally like this was 
back in the good old days, you know, we did this. And then I realized, like, no, 2019 sucked. It was awful. <laughs> I thought it was terrible. You know, there were all these horrible political things going on and police shootings and kids in cages. And we were, you know, like, it just got worse. But that doesn't mean that 2019 was good, right? And that was the context you're writing this book in, you know, in, in a certain extent. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, so I think this poem is... Um, it sort of is doing two things at once. And I think this is why I put it at the beginning of the book. Um, I think that it's, um, on the one hand, it can be read as about uh, politics, authoritarianism, ecological disaster, anything that seems like a growing relationship with death in our future uh, and our present, um, I think feels uh, like that sort of public sphere um, can be one of the lenses through which you see the poem. But I think the poem also can be about uh, middle age. I'm 45. I'm entering. Um, I, yeah, I forget when I, <laughs> uh, I I read that, you know, there are like like 10 different definitions for when middle age begins. But I've had a number of friends die in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, this growing relationship with death that the poem speaks about can also be um personal and 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 interior you know the sense that as we get older we have to deal with mortality more and more often and so um and that's why i wanted at the front of the book because the the book itself is sort of equally about that public sphere and about a domestic sphere and this was the poem that was able to do i think um both of those things simultaneously and that was that was a good way to my way of thinking to to get into the book did you talk to your kids about politics during this time? Me? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, we did. Um, so my wife is a licensed clinical social worker who has some expertise in talking to kids about difficult subjects. Um, and I pretty much follow her lead on this stuff. Um, but I think both of us agreed um, early on that we didn't want to lie to our kids. We wanted to tell them things that were true, but we wanted to do it calmly and in a way that didn't feel like it was sensationalizing. Um, and, you know, at the same time, we spend a lot of time not saying that we are inherently right, but, you know, that's the that's the easiest way to get kids who have the opposite politics of you is for you to for you to push them towards your point of view so you know we say here's what we think here's what's happening here's what we think about it um and that's been kind of our approach i'm not sure that's the right approach <laughs> i don't know if there is a right approach to dealing with the contemporary world and kids but um or there's one right approach but but that's been what that's what we've been doing yeah, and I can't help but think as you're talking about kind of, I don't know, the potential for political backlash among one's own next generation of like just sort of, right, that's the entire premise of, of um, like, Alex P. Keaton being a yes. major character of, <laughs> of I mean, I, I have to bring him up, don't I, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. like family ties or, um, I don't know. Then I, I was thinking before, to go back to the thing I was talking about earlier, I was realizing that the ways in which that I, I have also been called upon to explain the virulence of my own rhetoric in response to Trump and his administration, like the sort of way in which I had paired a certain kind of like very ferocious rhetoric with opposition to that administration and many of its policies. And like now that administration is gone, certainly many of its after effects remain, certainly many criticisms of the Biden administration. And I have mm -hmm. sometimes heard children around me kind of continue 
that virulent rhetoric in context. Like they don't know how to port it to context where it is appropriate or like how to dial it down for or modulate it. And then I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God, we spent four years talking about Trump like this around children. And they think it's like, it's like, did I normalize this kind of, and like, how do I explain to them that that was like a special exception? They were born into, I mean, I'm not saying I think he was the only bad politician ever. I and mean, he's clearly, clearly not. But like the register of everything I said was different. And I was thinking about that as I was reading, I felt like the poem, the news kind of led me perfectly into um, like probably my other favorite poem in your collection, which is stages on a journey westward um, where, you know, it begins all the map makers in history have been wrong, but to vastly differing degrees, mostly it hasn't mattered. Right. We spent all this time belaboring mm-hmm. degree and detail and, and I'm grateful for nuance, but also like, how is this something yeah. you can explain? to a kid. Um, can you talk a little bit about that poem? Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the title of that poem comes from a James Wright poem. Um, I'm uh, just, you know, stealing his title. In fact, I, I have a lot of little moments in this book that are kind of private jokes to me and maybe to the 12 other people who have read the particular poems I'm referencing because it is poetry after all. But um <laughs> And uh, so that poem, um, that poem, I wrote that poem right after we moved to Denver. Um, And I was thinking about a couple different things at once. I was thinking about um, sort of what what America is, which is, you know, a a giant abstraction (laughs) that has, you know, real effects in the world all the time. Um, but but that sort of combination of abstract concept and very small physical details that make up the landscape, I think that's one thing I was thinking about in the poem. And then, kind of an, as an extension of that, I was thinking about the, the the idea of manifest destiny and westward expansion and all of this mythology that the United States built around um, around the West, and I was moving from Kansas City to Denver just for a job. I mean, not for, not on a wagon train or anything like that, but, um, but I felt in a weird way like I was, uh, I was in my own small way participating, whether I liked it or not, in this kind of myth um, of, of moving West, and then, um, like, I couldn't help but feel that. Um, and then I also just felt like, you know, as much as so much of America has been abstraction and myth, that abstraction and myth has been a massive draw to people all over the world for a very long time. And that abstraction and myth has come with real opportunities for a lot of people and has also come at the expense of a whole lot of people. And all of that complication is interesting to me. I was a history major in in college. So, I mean, this is stuff that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, And so I wanted to think about the ways in which that those abstract ideas, the way the myth of America has been, I think, complicated for me. I mean, the, not just by the Trump years, but really going back to sort of post 9-11. And I think, I mean, in my political opinion, the kinds of mistakes we made right after 9-11, which have just had very, very long uh, shadows. I think Trump is just one of those shadows in a way. These conversations about death are happening so differently, even for just like different American kids. Um, yeah. You know, how could I being a person who lives in Minneapolis, um, not be thinking about this all the time. And on a land, like, what is it? I think I recently explained to, I think I recently explained to someone like what a land grant university is. 
Like, we might as well call them, like, settler colonialist universities. Like, that would be blunter. Like, I mean, why do we have this euphemism built into everything that we say? Um, And to that extent, I'm glad that my kids are, you know, alive and in a time when there's an open dialogue about police violence, for instance. Like, I, I want them to go to, you know, marches that happen here in Kansas City, and I want them to be aware of that. I'm glad that they're doing that. Anyway, we can't have you read this poem because it's long and mm-hmm. it's a fantastic poem. I especially like the ending lines and sort of the last um, couple of verses. So I just want to tease that for our listeners that you should definitely pick up Wayne's new collection, We the Jury. Um, Wayne, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you guys so much for having me. And now we're thrilled to welcome Elizabeth Gaffney to the show. Elizabeth's first novel, Metropolis, a Barnes and Noble, Noble Discover Great New Writer selection, was published by Random House in 2005. Her second novel, When the World Was Young, was published by Random House in 2014. She won the 2019 Lawrence Prize for fiction. Her short stories have appeared in many literary magazines, and she's been a resident artist at Yaddo, the McDowell Colony, and the Blue Mountain Center. She also teaches fiction and serves as the editor at large of the literary magazine A Public Space. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is a joy and a pleasure to be here with both of you. I, I love the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. This is like a class reunion episode for me or something, because I've known both you and our other guest, Wayne Miller, for a really long time. <laughs> uh, you and I, if I'm remembering right, became friends sort of around our kids, particularly my, my oldest son and your eldest daughter are roughly the same age and I remember going on play dates constantly when I was living on the East Coast in 2008 I think is that when we met was it then well we met just before that when I was on my first book tour I remember I don't mean to say I remember more than you but I remember yeah yeah Gail and I were both hugely pregnant yeah and I was reading at UMKC, which you had so kindly invited me to do, which was a great reading, a, f- a really fun, well-attended reading. And I still remember your students were, were um, fabulous. And uh, yeah, then fortuitously, you had spent a bunch of time on the East Coast after that, and it solidified. Our kids kind of grew up together. Yeah. Playgrounds, Princeton, Brooklyn. I remember a lot of Brooklyn pl- playgrounds, and I remember, of course, you know, your house, uh, which we visited quite a bit with the kids, and they, certainly Moss remembers all of that. Um, so we don't usually do this in an episode when we're talking to writers, <laughs> we talk about them about writing and politics or whatever, but given the topic that we have at hand today, which is about thinking about writing from the point of view of kids, and particularly how that's changed during the pandemic, you want to tell us about your family? I will a little bit. Um... So my two daughters, Willa and Lucy, and my husband and I all live in a house in Brooklyn, which is, it's, it's kind of about more than just my kids and my family, because I grew up here. And uh, so it's a, it's, the house is a setting and the kids, and then my mother didn't grow up here, she grew up elsewhere, but um, you know, there's shreds of stories that I grab from families, but I kind of all situated them here and you know for the books that are past time or the things that I'm writing that are contemporary I'm always kind of grabbing shreds of different childhoods because um you know I think that's you know that's where all of our psychopathology begins right 
Your 2014 novel, When the World Was Young, is told mostly from the point of view of Wally Baker, um, this captivating young girl in 1940s Brooklyn. And in this episode, we're talking a lot about how the long isolation of COVID may or may not have changed the way that we think and write about children. I'm curious about how your novels shift backward in time might have affected the way that you thought about Wally and her hopes and desires. Um, Yeah, I'm glad you asked about time. Um, I do something that it's not such a shocker, but uh, but it's it's always a little counterintuitive to kind of start at the at the end of something. Um, And there's a way in which my book starts with the spoiler, the the main character's mother commits suicide on VJ Day. And so the day that is supposed to be national and global um, celebration, the end of the war is a per- day of personal tragedy. And that, that was actually drawn from a, a family story, a fam- something that did happen in my family, um, in my mother's generation. But um, what I think is that we all have these traumas that shape us and um, some people may have grander traumas, deaths, other people may have smaller traumas, but I, I feel like, you know, the other day my my 13 uh, year old was asking me, why do I not remember all the good things about when I was little? Why do I only remember all the bad stuff? And I was like, you know what, welcome to literature and life. Um, that's what sticks, right? Happy ending, sad ending. It's really just where you delimit it. I think we all go through so much, you know, it's like waves and cycles of experience, but the punctuation marks are often the, the crises and the trauma and the, the crucial ones to the way we think are somehow the, the ones that happen in childhood. So yeah, I've been really drawn to writing about childhood. Do you, do you, consciously think I am writing from the point of view of a child in the 1940s as opposed to a point of view of a child now or do you just think I'm writing from the point of view of a child well I I really do think I'm writing from the point of view of a child for the most part but then there does have to be certain kinds of correction um I I I try to avoid like ludicrous anachronisms and so there are certain kinds of diction certain kinds of um cursing or slang or details that that need to be right when you're not you know and at this point you know my childhood is historical fiction and um certainly you know my mother's is and then my previous book I was writing about um you know the 1860s and 70s so that was that was deeper in that that first book I had to work so hard never to use the word okay because god I'm we say okay all the time, but that wasn't a word. So there, so I, you know, it's, it's, you know, I didn't want to make her sound like some canned kid off of Father Knows Best and say like, gee willikers, pa. (laughs) Um, I wanted it to sound real, but I also didn't want there to be any howlers for someone who was a kind of a stickler for either the time period or for, um, I guess, yeah, um, that that line between you know you don't want your your small child to come out sounding like some some peculiar Poindexter who speaks like a highly schooled um, you know PhD type character. Like so holding coffee. 
like character. Well, you know, they're they're special cases. <laughs> There's always the exception. <laughs> well, so it also strikes me that there are a lot of similarities between the pandemic that we just went through and the period of time that Wally was growing up, even though we were just talking about the differences. You know, while World War II is in full swing, she's separated from her father. Her younger brother dies due due to a penicillin shortage during the war. Is it fair to say that, like kids today, she's having to deal with and consider concepts of death and sex and betrayal way earlier than she would have uh, needed to do that in some other less chaotic time? I think that is fair to say, but I might even go further and suggest that there's this um, there's this kind of artificial um, period here and there in between the wars, maybe the Cold War, maybe um, I'm not even sure how many years in the 20th century where we where children are allowed to be innocent and um, frolicsome and you know there are no traumas. The truth is, you know, World War II is preceded not so long before by World War One, and you jump back that early and there's medicine is not very um, able to save many people. That's the era in which, you know, my crazy Irish relatives were still having 10 children because they weren't sure how many of them would survive. And, um, and then you go to work at a factory anyway, right when you're like five, you know, I mean, exactly. you go far enough back into the 19th century, you predate child labor laws and things are quite different. Right, so that little sweet spot where, um, you know, the kids are, have the rights have been instituted where children are, are supposed to be children, they're supposed to be educated, they're supposed to be protected from having to work and being exploited. And, and yet we haven't had all this kind of ugly stuff swoop in. But, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, it was 1970s in New York and... I, I feel like my whole childhood was punctuated with, oh, Mrs. Howard was stabbed in the kidney. Oh, um, your friend Trilby's mother was murdered. Oh, um, you know, there were just, there's a, there was a lot of disaster. I mean, I was safe and privileged on the one hand, but it wasn't entirely without anxiety and fear. And so I don't know when people are actually safe. I think it's a myth. Um, that that children are sheltered. Um, I don't think they are. Well, um, I wonder if, on that note, you would read to us a little bit from the book and we can hear from Wally's point of view. Yeah, thank you so much. So I'm going to read from a chapter quite early on. It's um, chapter four. And... You really just have to know about um, the fact that Wally and her brother um, Georgie are growing up with two households quite close together because her father is off at war and her mother's living in an apartment near her grandparents and they spend a lot of time with the grandparents. And the grandparents have um, an African-American housekeeper and Wally's best friend although it's not entirely approved of by all the adults, is is the son of the housekeeper. And yeah, I'll just start in. When Georgie got sick, it seemed like just a cold at first, but it didn't get better, it got worse. Wally had been frightened by the eerie gasping noises that came from her brother's room. 
In the middle of the third night, when it reached the point that the whooping wouldn't stop, Stella came to Wally's bedside and shook her. But Wally wasn't sleeping. Get your shoes on, Wally. I'm going to drop you off at Gigi's, and then I'm taking Georgie to the hospital. Stella walked so fast, Wally had to run to keep up with her. Her grandmother and Loretta met them at the door. There was a taxi out front, and Gigi was wearing her coat. Her mother and grandmother had gone to the hospital with Georgie, and Loretta put Wally to bed in the red and white striped bedroom and sat with her singing Amazing Grace until she ran out of verses and Wally still wasn't asleep. Wally drifted off at last, very late, to the droning of Loretta's voice telling the only bedtime story she ever told, a story that was always more or less the same but seemed to have a myriad possible variations and always one to suit the business of the day, whatever the day may have brought, but which as far as Wally knew had no end since she had never hung on long enough to hear it. Once when the world was young, Loretta began. And this time it took a comic turn as if Loretta was trying to cheer Wally or herself up. There were no grown-ups anywhere because the world hadn't been there long enough for the first babies to grow up yet. Now, the only problem was the babies had to raise themselves. So naturally, by the time they were young children, like yourself and Georgie, they were already spoiled rotten. They ate whatever they pleased and stayed up late every night and there was no one to tell them it shouldn't be that way. In the morning, Wally was pleased to wake up in the peaceful quiet of Gigi's house. No crying or whooping to take every shred of attention. It was a rarity for her in those days to spend a night at her grandparents' house. But then her mother did not come home, just Gigi. Would you like to learn some needlepoint stitches, Wally? Her grandmother asked. I'm not allowed to use needles, Gigi. I don't think I'm old enough. Well, needlepoint needles aren't sharp, you know. It was one of the first times Wally could remember seeing her grandmother flustered. No, thank you. I don't think I'd like it very much. How's Georgie? Is he getting better? Is he coming home today? Not today, darling, but soon. When Stella finally came back the following day, Wally ran to her. Her mother did not kneel down to embrace her. She stood limply, her arms crossed against her chest. Mother, mother, Wally cried. How is Georgie feeling? Go play with him in the kitchen, Wally, or help Loretta. I'll be there in a few minutes. And then her mother walked past Wally and into the living room to confront her own supposedly perfect and powerful physician of a mother who had not been able to pull the strings to get the penicillin that might have saved Georgie's life. You're the chair of your department, Wally heard her mother shout through the door. Don't tell me you couldn't requisition enough to treat a child. Just a tiny child, 28 pounds. I'm an obstetrician, not a god, Stella. I can't requisition what isn't there. Oh, come on, mother, none? What were you saving your allotment for, some hussy with the clap who comes into your clinic? Get a hold of yourself, Stella. You know they're sending the penicillin to the front, so men like your husband don't have to die for their country. They're filtering the stuff from the soldiers urine, for Christ's sake, so they can reuse it. So, now Georgie died that Rudy might live? Well, I'll tell you which one I would have. Don't say another word, Stella. 
There wasn't any medicine there for Georgie, and I am just as sorry as you are, but I won't listen to your accusations any longer. Wally backed away from the door where she'd been listening and crept down to the kitchen in a fog. Loretta? Loretta, mother said... Loretta lifted Wally into her arms, breathing in that same salty, sweet child smell that Stella had had at her age, too, and Ham and Georgie. Thank you. That particular section is so heartbreaking. I feel like um, Georgie is such a singularly alive little kid. Um, one of my favorite characters. And we... Oh, thanks know from very early on that he's um he's one of the great losses that um that Wally faces and the other of course being her mother which you mentioned and so we was talking about this a little bit earlier and so were you that that innocence um Wally is obviously not um protected in that way she has a very hard war um and you were saying that the innocence of children can be such an adult invention and we also see in that scene Ham and Loretta um, and the ways in which some kids' parents are not able to protect them um, from harsh realities, uh, don't have that privilege, and the way in which insulating kids is a way to signal wealth and social status and privilege. And then also just thinking about during that scene, I feel like early on in the pandemic, many people kind of said, if children were getting sick, this whole thing would be handled so differently. Um, and here we see this moment where you see this kind of tender portrayal of like a very loving and friendly sibling relationship. And then you see Wally lose Georgie. And I kind of thought about all the ways that was different um, from what's going on now. I mean, obviously not for everyone. But then, you know, as we are starting to worry about what's going to happen to kids, um, the different ways that people are, are facing up to that. Um, so who gets to kind of be innocent in, in the United States. And, and how did you think about that when you were portraying like Loretta and Ham, which is like also one of the central, they're, they're two of the central relationships for Wally. Um, yeah, it's such a, it's such a great question. Who gets to be innocent? Um, I think for sure these kids don't, I think there are moments of naivete of, of, you know, I, what's the, you know, maybe innocence is the, um, the bright and shining, we think it's a good thing word for naivete, which is kind of ignorance of things you really ought to know. And um, we want to protect kids from so much, but, it, you know, unless we put them in a bubble, which we can't, um, they're not protected for long. And um, I mean, the the relationship between Ham and Wally is, is one that, um, it happens because of a social inequity, right? Um, Ham's mother works for Wally's family as a domestic worker. And yet um, there's enough flexibility, maybe there's a enough lack of supervision in their world that um, they're allowed to be equal. But, you know, also I was just reading um, Octavia Butler's Kindred and there's this great passage in which um, the main character is is in the in the antebellum South period, and she's talking about how, well, hey, this kid Rufus is friends with this other African American kid, and later she she knows that Rufus will become the slave master, and this kid will become his you know 
an enslaved person on this guy's plantation. And so how are they friends now? And there was almost like a, well, until some age of puberty or adolescence, they live in a weird space where they can kind of pretend to be, um, to be equal. And so with, with Ham and Wally, they are close friends and, and yet life treats them very unequally and they see it together. They encounter situations where he's discriminated against as a brown person and she's maybe judged for being with him because she's white, but she, you know, she's allowed in, she's not um, sent to change in the broom, in the mop closet, um, all these things. So, I mean, these are, these are young kids and these are, um, you know, that, I think that the, the time of innocence probably extends about to Georgie, right? When he's, you know, he's still a toddler an older toddler when he dies. And, you know, once you start getting language and, and connections in the world, if you have eyes or ears or any connections, you're going to see um, what's not fair in the world. And uh, I, mean, I do think it's the adult's position to point it out. You know, I think some people gloss over it, but I think it's always there. I had said earlier when we we're talking to Wayne, like, that I had been allowed to be a kind of innocent by my parents when I was growing up. But the truth is that I knew about racial division and I knew about like homophobia, which was omnipresent in my high school. Like, and, and, um, and I'm writing about those things now. And I remember all of those scenes. Like, so I knew about it, but I feel like what my parents were doing was telling me it was okay to ignore it or not take it seriously. That's a difference than real innocence, right? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's an okay to erase this because it doesn't affect you. I think that's, I think kids are capable of making that kind of calculation. Well, I mean, that's the one thing is that, you know, you were, um, we were talking a minute ago about, um, what you know? What are the calculations? Would the would the children would the pandemic have been managed differently if children were getting sick early? Or um, what's the calculation of your parents saying, um, just deal with it? It's not really affecting you. Just go along, get along. Um, I, I think that it's that what we protect is so. I mean, it's so Darwinian. It is literally our own gene line in so many cases, unless we make Herculean efforts to be bigger and wiser and more generous than that so that yeah the i mean kids are getting kids are getting sick now to some extent with delta right but um even so people aren't doing much because um you know is it that lawmaker's kid or this um governor's kid i mean how old are their kids i don't know people seem to make crazy decisions i think my you know my parents also sheltered me in some ways but i i grew up in brooklyn which was a little different from from your experience whitney That's so sure. i was seeing a lot more of a diverse community and even the part of brooklyn i live in now has actually become much more gentrified than it was when i grew up here um so so sugi i'm curious you haven't talked about your childhood very much yet like you were blocked the whole thing out no come on <laughs> I mean, Yikes. it appears in, you know, the events that were happening in Sri Lanka were, you know, I'm sure, you know, you're coming from a family that's coming from a country that's having a civil war, in essence. Yeah. Um, I think some of my earliest memories were of, yeah, I mean, reading the news or seeing um, 
like printed news that sort of circulated in the diaspora about that, some of which was propaganda. Um, so, but yeah, how did I mean, your certainly... parents tell you to think about it, or how did they signal to you like that you should take it very seriously, or that okay, you've gotten away and you don't have to worry about this anymore? It's not your deal. Be an American. Um, I think we certainly knew about it um, to some extent, and we're. Um, I mean, we did not travel back to Sri Lanka when I was a kid. Um, that was something that I chose to do as an adult. Um, and, but yeah, I think, you know, it was something that was discussed, like not sort of um, explained necessarily in great detail. And I think like, this is a, right there, there's like kind of the, um, an opportunity for parents to shape the narrative significantly when there are not alternative sources for that information. Yeah. Right. Um, so the parents end up with a really sizable amount of power in how it ends up being portrayed or described because the kid's not learning about it in school. They're probably not even learning about it on the news. So um, I think ultimately I was lucky that I had parents who encouraged me to read a lot. And then, of course, I ended up reading a lot about the war and developing a lot of my own opinions about it. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily the case for a lot of other kids in the diaspora, um, some of whom had their parents as their primary sources of information. And like, it's interesting to see how now, like there's the internet, you could find other stuff. Um, so, I mean, what do parents do with that power to describe the news? Um, in some ways, like right now, if you lie to your kid and your kid wants to find out that you're lying to them, they can, they can call you on that pretty fast. They don't have to wait until they go to college and find the university library and like read the historical read about the historical event that you described they can they can call you on it um and i appreciate when the kids that i know find that sort of detail and ask for more information about it or ask how do i know how did i know which things are true and sort of teaching kids like a critical skill of like what kind of news source would i actually look at um i don't think that that's something that i had as much as a kid so, I mean, certainly I was not an innocent, um, but nor was I the best informed. Did you have a sense of um, missing a sort of an extended family community or other, other family members who could have been a you know, sounding board for a different point of view? Um, yeah, certainly at some point I had, um, I have a cousin who emigrated who's about my age who emigrated when I was a teenager and she and I are very close and she was very influential for me, but also certainly as like a young person, a lot of, um, if you have a, a family that's scattered all over the world, it's very expensive to meet all of them. Yeah. And if you are a parent with two kids who, uh, if you're parents with two kids and you're trying to haul those kids all over the world to meet all the relatives, you can't, you can't do it that frequently. So there were definitely relatives I didn't meet or people I didn't see very much or extremely long car trips. Um, but it is also true that I can go to many, many countries in Europe and find my first cousins. Now, many of them, I know them really well. Um, and I think many of them had different childhood experiences of innocence. Like some of them were refugees or asylum seekers or just emigrated and then didn't end up going back or what, what have you. So I think their experiences were, yeah, I think obviously much less sheltered than mine. Um, but yeah, I think like sort of like Wally is such a captivating character to me in part because like she's sort of right at the crux of 
having things explained to her and figuring them out for herself. Like, and then the sort of primary, the person who might have been the explainer is, like, gone. Mm. And so, like, sort of remembering myself at that moment, I was like, oh, how did I, how did I kind of do that detective work of adulthood? Yeah, and even when they're there, I think often the adults, um, as you, as you were describing, they don't, they don't say what's unpleasant. Um, No, right? Like, even in that scene that you read, um, we discover that Georgie is dead through eavesdropping. Right. Just like a primary mode of information gathering for children. Exactly. Um, And one of the things I was interested in with this book, in terms of like children and trauma, is to write a book that was set in a period of war that was not on um, on on a front, so that it was kind of the war at home and seeing the repercussions of, you know, on the one hand, some people who die in the war and that affects the world at home, but also you know, all the disasters that can befall that seem more um, commonplace or pedestrian in comparison to sort of bombs and guns and, and those kinds of things. Um, yeah, because I'm, I'm interested in, in the ways that um, we, all, we all have crises um, sort of wherever we are. Um, almost, you know, if you haven't lived through something absolutely dire, you probably have been very sad and it might seem unimportant or um, unmeaningful compared to the devastation of someone who's really lost everything. But to some extent for a child, the anguish is, is like, it's up to 11. And that's how that's just as high as it goes. You know, you can get to 11 from um, your pet dying or from losing your entire homeland. And that's pain. That's, that's where that's what kids feel it's very primal okay so you published this book in 2014 uh when the world was young the one we've been talking about which is long before covid you know threatened the right of donald trump and marjorie taylor green and most of the gop to be innocent and irresponsible at all times Um, but i know from our talks that you have written and are sending out a middle grade book that is also about children as those books tend to be um (laughs) could you talk to us about that Yeah, I'd love to. So um, the book is called Can You Hear Me? And um, I co-wrote it with my friend Andrea Chapin. It's based on one of my daughters who is deaf. Um, She has a cochlear implant. And I, I was very interested in, well, there's a huge dearth of literature about who she is. Um, She's an auditory deaf person of this generation of kids. She's not a primary signer. She's got some sign language. She's interested in sign language, but it it will never be her first language. And um, I was just looking for texts that would speak to her. Um, And then I'm so interested in the history and past. And so um, bouncing ideas with um, my friend one day, over a glass of wine, we kind of came up with a storyline, which would be a deaf, because I think I was probably telling her about this. There's this great museum in the audiology place where she goes. That's a museum of archaic hearing aid type devices, hearing assistive devices. And, you know, it's just kind of like a few cubbies built into the wall, but it's very cool. 
um, especially if you're a kid with like a cochlear implant and hearing aids and it's kind of techy, you know, they're like these weird trumpets and they're made of sterling silver and leather with tubes and they're just very organic and strange. So anyway, we came up with a story that's a kind of a ghost story about um, a deaf girl who is actually not allowed to use sign language in the 19th century because there was a time when they were trying to teach deaf people to be auditory and lip read and speak so that they could mainstream them and that was supposed to be kind. But it was one of these brutal boarding school situations where they were, you know, tied up and beaten if they used their hands to speak. Um, and then there's, then there's the contemporary kid who struggles with her own kind of hazing and discrimination issues, which my daughter has experienced. Um, so we were, I was interested in not, you know, there's a, there's a lot of schism in the deaf community. And um, I was interested in showing this, like two sides of it through that veil of history. And um, also I was interested in channeling the voice of kids because um, it's, it's so different from the way you write a child for an adult book, um, there's, you know, um, we're using first person, um, for the, for the, for the middle grade, um, not that every middle grade book would need to, but it's, it's much more immediate and we're trying to sort of channel the voices. Whereas, um, it's more of a close third when I'm writing about kids in my adult fiction and I would have, I you know, I, I did actually start out writing Wally as a point of view character, and um, I couldn't jump as easily around the entire universe of, of my world, which wanted to include adults and people in different places and um, parts of society. So it's, it's, there's something more intimate for me about the, the middle grade voice. So Elizabeth Whitney tells me that you drafted this book before the pandemic, but you were revising it with your writing partner during the pandemic. And so we have two craft questions about that. I'm, I'm curious about whether the pandemic changed the way you thought about or approached these kids as characters. And uh, also, did it change the way you thought about or approached your own children? And are those two things related at all? Um, it's really interesting. I, I don't know if it was um, anything conscious like as the pandemic came in, I had some realization and decided, oh, we should change this. But maybe it was because of the increased intimacy of living with my kids with like nobody else and sort of hearing them and seeing them in isolation. I, I th do think it really changed um, my understanding of, I guess my kids' voices, what, I mean, one of the things is that it, it gave me a chance, maybe more time to spend reading the book. So in particular, my deaf daughter is, um, she's quite interested and invested in the book. And so she's heard every word of every draft. She has read it on her, you know, iPad. She's the sensitivity reader. She also suggests scenes or says, this is stupid. Uh, it doesn't sound like that. She, so she's very helpful. And I, I got a lot of access to her just because, you know, <laughs> the rest of life was over. Um, but also I think it, around the time of the pandemic, we were doing a draft and we decided to, um, to, 
sort of amp up the point of view of some of the secondary characters. I, I think we, maybe it had to do with not wanting the main character to be sort of so isolated a point of view or trying to create more of a community or a chorus. I think my kids were both struggling with the isolation and um, somehow that did lead us to um, do a little deeper work in terms of character building and voice for the um, for the sort of secondary level characters. So now um, there are there are more first person point of view characters than there had initially been just two, like the first person present and the first person past. But now there's sort of a peripheral character or two in each time time period that also gets a voice. Sure. Um... Elizabeth, I'm so looking forward to reading this middle grade book. I have a I have a young friend with a cochlear implant. Oh wow! I'm very interested cool. to hear about this. Um, so so looking forward to seeing that. Um, and in the meantime, um, thank you so much for joining us and, and talking about when the world was young. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. This was a pleasure and. Um, you know, it's it's really lovely to be in the conversation you guys have been conducting. It, um, it's, it's a huge service. Speaking of isolation and pandemics, um, it, it's it's nice to uh, know that the literary community is still there and, and you guys are helping that. So thanks. And speaking of which, we've, we haven't had a chance to mention, along with your books, you have started this new writer space. Can you just say what that is and tell people how to find it real quick? Oh yeah, really quickly. Thank you for asking. Um, it's called the 24 hour room and, uh, it's a virtual writer space. So it started with just studio space, a zoom room where people could collect and it's built and built and built since then. It's so it's online at the 24 hour room, the 24 hour room.org. Well, thank you very much. We'll put it in the show notes along with links to your work the, when the world uh, was young in Metropolis and and all your other good stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Great to see you. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on LitHub's virtual book channel and on our own YouTube channel. Our new website with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators is at fnfpodcast.net. Until next time, happy reading and writing from Fiction Nonfiction.